Please remain standing as I read this morning's text. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we, can take, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, these will be, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you for being here today. Our kids can be dismissed. There's programming down the hall for them and for the rest of you. Thank you for uh, being with the 9 o'clock worship uh, service here at Community Christian Church. Trey Parker and Matt Stone have won Emmys, and they've won, won Tonys and even a Grammy Award for some of the shows and the productions that they've written. And a few years ago, they were recently surprise guests at a class uh, at NYU. Uh, the class was filled with aspiring writers. There are only about 30 people in the class, and in walk these guys to give the secret sauce to this class from their own writing room. And they pointed to a big whiteboard at the front of the class, and they said, uh, we have just one just like this in our, our writing room, and we have different colored markers just like you have, and we all throw out ideas uh, for scenes that can work as an individual sketch, but the worst thing for any show is for there to be a scene and to people, uh, for people to go after the scene, what, what was that scene for? And so they gave this rule of writing that must be obeyed to prevent a story that goes nowhere. And they said this, if you take all of those scenes that you put on your whiteboard and you think that they will make a show and you line them all up so that they would resemble a story, if in between all of those scenes you can insert the words and then, like here's a scene and then, here's a scene and then, he says this, your show will be terrible, terrible. And then is always a boring story. This happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. No one wants to watch that. What has to go in between each of those creative beats in a story are different words. Not and then, but therefore. Therefore is the word that makes a compelling story. And also the word but. And so you have your scenes, and you start with the first one, and after that, it can't be and then. It has to be therefore or but. So this thing happens, therefore this other thing happens, but then this totally weird unexpected thing happens, and therefore yet another thing happens, and everyone finds love in the end. That's a, that's a good story. And if you're a student today, pay attention because I just gave you the secret to getting an A on your next, next writing assignment. And so anytime you have a story or a movie or a TV show or whatever, 
and, and where this happens and this happens and then this happens and that's all that ever happens, you want to shoot your eyes out because nobody wants to watch that story. That's always a boring story. There's never any hope that it will go anywhere. And so why am I giving you this creative writing lesson? It's, it's this, because it's not just on paper that we want a compelling story. E- every one of us wants that same kind of compelling story in the life that we live. When life is just a series of disconnected events that don't ever seem to go anywhere, like like how was your day or how was your week, how was your year? Well, I, I got up and I had coffee and then I went to work and then I went to lunch and then I went to the school and then I went home and then I watched TV and then I fed the dogs and then I went to bed. That's a sequence of events, but that's not a story. That's not what we're after. What we want is the story. I was this, but then this thing happened, and therefore, my life can never now be the same. That's the story that we want. That's what all of us want. And it's why, why we want that story is because it's the only thing that can give us hope. Uh, We've been on a journey together in a lot of weeks here, and we've been talking about hope. We've been taking some great passages in the scripture, and we've been reminding ourselves of the hope that we have in Jesus. And in part, we are doing this because we cannot live without hope. Hope is that story that we need in our lives. Hope is to the spirit what oxygen is to the body. Without it, we die. Uh, When a team loses hope, the game is over. When investors lose hope, the stock market goes down. When an army loses hope, the war is lost. And when a patient loses hope, then death is crouching at the door. And so we are unavoidably shaped by the things that we believe about our future, right down to the money in our pockets. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Paul writes... In First Timothy chapter 6, he writes a, a, a set of verses for the good people in the church in Ephesus who maybe don't have a lot of money. And then a few verses down from that, he writes another set of verses to all the good church people in Ephesus who do have money. And of course, as you can imagine, uh, as this letter is being read to the church in Ephesus, everybody is listening to the letter, right? Both people with money and without money, and both people who want money and people who already have money, both of those groups, and you and I are in those same groups today. Some of us don't have much, but we want it, and some of us already have it. And here's what Paul says to us all. The first thing he says is, I want you to beware that money is a trap that we can fall into. Beware. Money is a trap that we can fall into. If there's, if there's a heart in this passage, it's this little line, that money is a trap. And Paul tells us how this works. Ver, look at verse 9. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, a trap into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Now, let's tackle the most famous line in that text first. You've probably heard it put this way, when a Bible is not actually open, people will say, money is the root of all evil. 
Now I want you to look very closely. Is that the way the text reads? No, not at all. Money is the root of all evil is surely the most misquoted verse of the Bible. What does it actually say? It doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money, the pursuit of money, is a root of all kinds of evil. And so that's a different teaching. The the teaching is not that it's not money itself. It's the love of it that is the check. If you have the desire for wealth, whether you actually have it or not, what you need to know that is that as you're out there chasing after it, what you're really chasing after can actually result you in you being caught in a trap, in a snare. The word for snare or trap here is one that means a, a little noose that they would have spread along the ground uh, and covered over with leaves and dirt uh, to, 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 to catch birds. And so little bird comes, you know, walking along the ground. They, they don't see the noose, and the cord get, gets pulled, and all of a sudden the bird is dinnered. That, that's the trap. And Paul says just like that, our money obscures the truth around us and becomes a trap. Just the desire for it can prevent us from seeing reality in a way that destroys our souls. And so we're walking along in search of a pocket full of money, and without notice, the cord gets pulled, and that trap goes off, and we are, we are caught. And to make things more dire, Paul mentions that there's not just one trap, but there are several different kinds of traps that the love of money can lead us into. Let me give you just a few of those that I see in the text. Uh, first is the trap of certainty, the trap of certainty. One of the allures of money and wealth is that we want to be in control, right? I I want money, I want to have money because I want to also have all of the options in life so that I don't have to rely on anybody or be subject to anybody. And so what money offers us, we think, is the promise of security that it can elude. Uh, Let's put this uh, on the table by way of example. I want you to think um, about maybe you wake up one day and you've accumulated suddenly everything that you're after in life. And, and let's go overboard here, okay? You have all of the comforts that you could ever imagine. You, ju- you just woke up one day and all of a sudden you have an island to yourself with a mansion and you have staff and you have a housekeeper and a driver and a butler and a personal trainer and a chef, all, all, those, all that's fine. I want you to think about this. In that life, will those things come to your rescue when one of your children rebels and says, I want off the island? Will those things come to your rescue when a spouse passes away? Will those things save you When a doctor steps into the room and gives a diagnosis that's fatal, can money fix your ultimate problem, which is sin against God? That's what your problem really is. No, it can't. And that's the trap. Money traps us into believing this. If I'm rich, then nothing bad can happen. That's the line. That's the trap. We think money can give us some security But the fact is, money can't possibly stop all the real problems. It can't stop death. It can't stop tragedy. It can't stop broken relationships. 
it can't stop anything that is eternal. Money can't ever give you the certainty that you're after. In fact, Paul here points to a couple of things in life that are certain. Uh, Money isn't one of them. Look at verse 7. Here's what he says. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can't take anything out of the world. The things that are certain in this life is that you came in with nothing and that you will leave with nothing. We say it this way, you can't take it with you when you go. And the hint Paul gives us here alongside that idea is that you also can't be sure you're going to keep it while you're here. Both birth and death are are the bookends of our life. And in between those certainties, everything is uncertain. Everything you build is just a sandcastle. And eventually it gets washed away. One of the richest people who ever lived on the planet was probably John D. Rockefeller. And when he died, one of his aides was asked, how much did he leave behind? And the aide answered, he left it all behind. That's what happened. He left it all behind. And you will too, assuming that you can get it and even keep it in the first place. Job said this, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Wealth creates this illusion that we're in control, that we have some certainty. The reality is money comes and goes, but God does not. God is the only certainty in this life. Here's another trap, the trap of excess. Look at verse 9. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that then plunge people into ruin and destruction. He also says down in 11, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith. The the NIV says uh, foolish and harmful desires. And it's this word desires that means inordinate and excessive drives. The word has this idea of addiction behind it. One of the monsters, if you talk to people who are familiar with addiction, one of the monsters that makes addiction so hard to overcome is called the tolerance effect. Uh, The tolerance effect is pretty easy to understand. If I use uh, a, a chemical in my body for the first time, then it's the first time when that chemical has the most dramatic effect because it's it's new to my body and so every other time after that the effect that it has on my body is a little less and so what do i need to do i need to have more of the drug to get the same effect and so we begin this hamster wheel that that i desire i crave right to get more and more because it's less and less effective now what's true of chemicals is also true of money Uh, when amy and i were first married uh, we didn't have furniture for our living room Uh, for several months we used in our living room two lawn chairs that somebody had given us for wedding gifts and one thing that was definitely out of the question in in those days was a stereo i mean we couldn't afford the necessity of chairs let alone the luxury of a sound system. And so what, what did we do? We went without a stereo. That's no problem. It's not hard at all. That was a luxury after all, right? Well, fast forward 
just a little bit to uh, another job with a little better pay. There's actually a signing bonus, if you can believe that, working for a church. And so we look at each other and we think, oh, my goodness, that stereo system that we've always been thinking about now, now, oh, oh, that's a luxury we can afford. Cool. And so now we have a stereo in our living room and it's hooked up to our TV and life is, is great. And that's 1996. Okay. Just last year, that Sony stereo system, that luxury that we could suddenly afford at the time, just this last year, it bit the dust. And the tolerance effect kicked in. Because neither of us looked at each other this last year and said, well, I guess we could go back to having no stereo in our living room. We didn't do that. That wasn't even a thought. No way. Why? Because of the tolerance effect. What was once a luxury that we could finally afford is now a necessity that we have to have. And that's the way the tolerance effect works in money. And it happens in a blink. And that's the trap. The, the, the money traps us into believing, I'm not rich at all. I'm not rich at all. I'm not rich. I mean, all... All, all I have is a sound bar hooked up to my giant TV. That's all I have. But those people over there, oh my goodness, they're the rich ones because they have a whole theater room in their house. They have projector and theater seats and a subwoofer that does the DTX single thing for the movie. And they even have a popcorn machine in the back. That's rich. I, I'm not rich. I just have a sound bar and a sound TV. No matter how much money you have, you will always believe that you do not have much. We always look at other people who have more, no matter how much we have, and say, I don't have that much. There's a survey done of millionaires, and these are people with $1 million or more in investable assets, and they were asked to do a little self-assessment. And the survey found that only 13% of those people thought that they were wealthy. Do you hear that? There, there were over 700 millionaires involved in this study. And if you're doing the math, it means that 87% of them, nearly 9 in 10 of millionaires, said, I'm not the rich person in the room. You see, the person that's wealthy is always the person who has more than me. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't take a million dollars to think that way. We all do. None of us thinks that we're rich. Rich is always a relative term, no matter where or who you are. Rich is always the next rung up. And so at one time in my life, rich was having anything but lawn chairs in my living room. But now rich to me is somebody who has the theater room in their house. That's the tolerance effect. The desire for money is a trap that makes us believe that person is rich, but I'm not rich. And it doesn't matter how much money we have, there's always somebody with more, so I'm not rich. And that's the trap of excess. There's one more here, the trap of arrogance. I want you to go down to verse 17. Paul says this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He says, command those 
rich, in the NIV it says, not to be arrogant. Not to be arrogant. Haughtiness or arrogance has this idea behind it of being high-minded and superior to other people. It is to have disdain for the suggestions of other people. Now, here's what's crazy about this verse. When Paul writes, he doesn't say, if those who are rich become haughty, then tell them to stop. That's not the way he writes it. He says right, of the, right out of the gate, he says, charge the rich people in the room not to be arrogant. What does that tell us? In other words, Paul assumes right out of the gate that along with any kind of wealth also comes arrogance and superiority. Paul presumes that the rich people in the room are already arrogant. And so his teaching is not a suggestion here. It's a command. Rich people, do not get a big head. And the reason that Paul knows that haughtiness follows money is that it's our natural tendency. In our heart, what we want to do is we want to justify ourselves. We, we want to be in control. And so when that natural bent of our heart to be in co- control comes into contact with just a little bit of financial success, maybe, maybe it's a promotion that you get, maybe you land uh, the, the monster account, um, maybe that investment that you make takes off, and, and, or maybe the windfall comes, you didn't know, it, but it's there in your mailbox. Whatever that success looks like, odds are that when it happens, then you will automatically begin to overestimate your success in every other area of life. Wealth makes us confident. And then by extension, it makes us overconfident in all of those other areas that we have no business being confident in. Having su- success with money, if we, if, we, if we get those things, then it's not long that in every area of your life you begin to think, oh man, I got this. Why? Because I have a lot of that money. And that means you become unteachable. And when you become unteachable, you handicap yourself as a person. There's a current phenomenon right now, and that's to become TikTok famous. Uh, maybe you've heard of the Island Boys. Here's a pic. They are fresh off uh, you know, the farm throwing hay bales, I think. Uh, the Island Boys were in jail as teenagers, and uh, they are actually brothers. They decided to start a rap career. Uh, and so they get out of jail, and they shoot a rap song called I Am An Island Boy from a pool in South Florida. The, the, the song uh, goes viral on Twitter and TikTok, and now, in the words of Snoop Dogg, two goofballs in a pool are famous and rich. Now, here's where this helps us. The Island Boys, after uh, they came into fame and riches, are being interviewed on a podcast, and during the conversation, one of the hosts, who's maybe a little older and he, he, he's been down the road a, a while, you know, he decides to help these two goofballs with some financial advice. And he says, you know, guys, have you ever even thought about investing your money in case this rap thing doesn't continue like this for you in the future? Now, that, that's an easy question. That's, that's a softball kind of thing. That's not a threatening offer at all. That's a wise voice kind of leading them where they should probably go. But, but both of the island boys, when he said that, 
were visibly irritated by the suggestions of financial literacy. And one of the island boys says this on the podcast, shut up, I make more money than you. And the fight was on and they ended up walking off the set of the podcast and that's the trap. That's the trap. Money traps us into believing I'm rich so I don't need to listen. If you are superior to other people in wealth, then the trap is that you'll believe you're superior to other people, period. And the command is, be on the lookout for that. Stop that. Stop letting money blind you to who you really are. And the only way that that's possible is to allow other people into your life to speak into your life when it comes to money. And so the first thing Paul says here to us is that money is a trap, the trap of uncertainty, the trap of excess, the trap of arrogance. Nobody among us gets to say this, well, I don't need to, to worry about money being a trap because I don't have enough money to worry about it being a trap. No, 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 nope, that's not, that's not how it goes. Paul writes verses 6 to 10 for people who don't have money but want it. And then he writes verses 17 to 19 for people who do have a lot of money. And guess what? That's everybody. The first lesson is that even when you don't have it, money can poison your life. And so beware, money is a trap. Here's what also he says. Behold. Money is a tool that we can leverage. Money is a tool that we can leverage. Look what he says, verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. There's something here that we don't quite expect. Paul begins to address wealthy people, rich people of this age, and we expect, oh, here it comes. (laughs) Paul's going to bring the the hammer finally down. Yes, Uh, Paul is going to tell those greedy rich people to stop it. Stop being rich, right? Now, we like that thought, don't we? Why? The reason we like that thought is because none of us think that we're the ones that Paul is talking to. The rich, wealthy person is somebody else. Remember the trap? See, by verse 17, you've already fallen into the money trap because you don't think Paul is talking to you. Guess what? If you flush your toilet with water that you can also drink, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. Like top 5% rich. That's us. But Paul does not say stop being rich to all the rich rich people. He doesn't say that. He just says stop thinking exalted thoughts about yourself. Stop being arrogant. But he never tells them to stop being rich. And so the teaching is don't stop being rich. What does that tell us? It tells us that money can be a tool that can be used. Okay, how? How is this money to be a useful tool? Here's the also the teaching, don't stop being good. Don't stop being rich, but also right alongside that, don't stop being good. He says the same thing 
three different times, three different ways. He says, do good. I want you to shower the gift of your wealth on other people through your actions. Number two, I want you to be rich in good deeds. The suggestion is to be rich in good deeds that involve giving. Number three, I want you to be generous and willing to share. And the emphasis is on our hearts, our hands. These need to be natural extensions of our hearts. Our whole being has to be involved when we give. And three times, three different ways, Paul says this, don't stop being good. Now you've heard the phrase, money is power, right? And I think Paul recognizes this here. And what we're instructed to do is to use the power that we've been given in the form of money, just like Jesus used his power. Jesus had immense power, if you think about it. What was he able to do? He was able to heal the sick, calm the storm. He was able to raise the dead, right? Immense power. But I also want you to think about how he used that power. He never did grand displays to to just wow people and, and put the spotlight on himself. Jesus was never walking along the road and saw a tree on one side of the road and decided to uproot the tree with just his eyes and put it on the other side of the road and plant it again just to say, look at me, look what I can do. No. How did Jesus use the power that he had? It was for others. It was always for others. He healed the sick. He calmed the storm. He raised the dead for other people. That's how we are called to use any power that money would give us for other people. Don't stop being good for others. Be rich in good deeds for others. Be generous and share for the sake of others. Use your money in the same way Jesus used his more. And the command is simple. We could boil it down and say this. If you make a lot, share a lot. If you make a lot, share a lot. The more money you have, the bigger the distance there should be between how you could live and how you do live. That's worth repeating. That's why I put it up there. The more money you have, the bigger the distance there should be between how you could live and how you do live. Let's be practical about how this really looks to use our power for other people. Let me suggest that putting distance between how we could live and how we do live might look like this, that that whatever income bracket you fall in, whatever neighborhood you live in, maybe using your power for other people means to willingly be living in the lower end of that bracket so that you can give a lot of money away. The more we become a family of people who live like that, can you imagine the weapon that we can be for good in this city where God has placed us. Don't stop being rich. Don't stop being good. And finally, don't stop being hopeful. Command those who are rich not to put their hope in wealth, but to put their hope in God. And then also verse 19, in this way they will lay treasure up for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. If there is a secret that Paul gives us here, 
to be able to avoid all of this money trapped and instead use money as a tool for other people and for God and his kingdom. It's in this word that he uses a couple times in verse 6 and verse 8, this word contentment. Contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Great gain. Do you know what that means? It means mega wealth. Contentment is the ability to be able to to be happy and, and satisfied and at peace no matter what the circumstance is. True wealth is to be able to smile as the storm is rolling in. That's true wealth. To be able to laugh when the market tanks, to be able to comp to be able to be confident when, when the job goes away. That's true wealth. How in the world? The only way to true contentment is to make sure your hope is in the right place, is in the right place. Money comes and goes, but God never does. Stephen King, um, maybe you are familiar, he's a riot prolific author and writer, and he, he said this, a couple of years ago I found out what you can't take it with you means. I found out while I was laying in a ditch at the side of a country road. I was covered with mud and blood and with the tibia of my right leg poking out the side of my jeans like a branch of a tree taken down in a thunderstorm. I had a MasterCard in my wallet. But when you're dying in a ditch with broken glass in your hair, no one accepts MasterCard. We come in naked and go out broke. We may be dressed when we go out, but we're just as broke. Warren Buffett, going out broke. Bill Gates, going out broke. Tom Hanks, going out broke. Steve King, broke. Not a crying dime. This is the way he ends. All the money you earn, all the stocks you buy, all the mutual funds you trade, all of that is mostly smoke and mirrors. It's still going to be a quarter past getting late when you tell the time on the Timex or a Rolex. Doesn't matter. So, here's what he says. I want you to consider making your life one long gift to others. Why not? All you have is on loan anyway. All that lasts is what you pass on. Now, Stephen King, as far as I know, is not a Christian, but I think he's on fast when it comes to money. With one little tweak in his last line. If you'll allow me, let, let me just tweak that last line. All that lasts is not what you pass on. That's what he writes. Here's the way I want to tweak it. All that lasts is what you send ahead. Contentment is the real wealth. It's mega wealth. And you don't need dollars in your pocket to be content. To be content in this life is to know, to be certain, to hope. Remember? Remember our definition of hope is to be certain of something that's going to happen in the future that hasn't happened yet. And our hope as Christians, is that we already have treasure in the next life. Our good deeds mean that we have treasure in heaven. Our generosity and sharing means that we have treasure in heaven. But the greatest treasure that we will find when we get there is Jesus Christ himself. He is our true treasure. And Jesus himself has already done what Paul is calling us to do. Jesus put his hope in God. He went to a cross and was certain 
that God would bring victory out of even death. He went to a cross certain in hope that God would find us innocent because he paid the price in his blood for our sins. That was his hope. We are his hope. When you talk about treasure, to get any treasure that you've ever heard about, you either have to purchase it or you have to find it. Do you realize that this treasure that we have in heaven, this Savior named Jesus Christ, this treasure has purchased us. This treasure that we have there has found us. Jesus laid you up in heaven as a treasure for himself. And so here's the punchline today. Our life today is shaped by what we believe about tomorrow. And if Jesus is that ultimate treasure, and Jesus treasured you in the most ultimate way by going to a cross for you, if you know that, then it requires a completely different approach to your money today. Your money can no longer be your hope. It is now just a sign of your hope. And that's the most compelling story that we could ever be a part of. God, if we're afraid to give away our money, would you help us to see that it's, it's become our hope? And if we're afraid to give away our money, help us to see that it's become our significance. Let us see clearly what Jesus has done for us. On the cross, he secured our significance, he secured our security, and therefore, therefore, money doesn't have to be our hope anymore. Money is now just a sign of our hope. Thank you for letting us be a part of the most compelling story there is, even down to our money. It's in Jesus' name we pray, everybody said.